back to another episode of the podcast. My friend Fahmida Rashid, executive editor at the brand new executive editor at uh, VentureBeat. How are you, Fahmida? Pretty good, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I've had a bunch of journalists on this podcast, but for some reason, I always, I'm always much more impressed by your career in journalism because you came out of a practitioner background. I feel like you've been coding and doing a lot of like technical uh, 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 things prior to getting into writing. Can you go all the way back to your introduction to the tech? How did you get into this crap show of an industry? Um, I started out actually while I was still in college. Um, I needed a job on campus and our computer department was hiring. So I was involved with actually transitioning my campus into um, Ethernet. Where is so this here I, in the U.S.? Yeah, in uh, Barnard College in New York City. So we were the ones that hooked the students up to the network. We helped get the buildings wired. You know, this was pre- before wireless was on campus. So Ethernet was like a new thing, and we were just running all the cables. I learned how to make Ethernet cables. So I did that all throughout college. And that was just I because tra- you needed a job. I needed a job, yeah. <laughs> and um, I really loved I really enjoyed it. Uh, we became a really tight group, the students who were part of this crew of computer consultants. And when it was time to start job hunting, I knew I wanted to stay in tech. And, you know, when you go to school in New York, all the big consulting companies are recruiting on campus. So... I figured, okay, this is my best shot at doing tech since I didn't major in computer science. And I ended up joining PricewaterhouseCoopers and I was part of their management consulting division. So I was doing a lot of software developing, uh, QA testing, more network admin, DBA work, all kinds of stuff for financial services companies. So that was pretty much my first exposure once I left the big urban university. Right. what the banks really needed, like what the banks were talking about, what the trading floors were talking about. And I got my hands-on experience right from there. What did you study in school? <laughs> I studied psychology, a uh, double major of psychology and political science. Are you using any of that? Maybe you're using a lot of it today. Oh, I mean, psychology was something I used a lot of. Um, my focus when I was in when I was studying psychology, because Barnard is very research heavy, I was doing some development psychology, but also organizational psychology. So the entire idea of how organizations work, how teams work, all the things that you hear now Google doing as part of their research and how people, um, like what the ideal workout, what the ideal workplace scenario is, those were things I was studying as part of my degree. So all throughout as a consultant, I always had that kind of in the back of my mind saying, okay, how do I make this team more effective? So, and then political science, you know, I'm using it now when we talk about geopolitics and stuff. So no matter what you study, my philosophy is there's always room for it somewhere. And I'm really glad I've been able to do it that way. Well, when did the journalism bug bite? Because you you, see, you went into PwC and you did a lot of, uh, uh, what we call it, grunt work? <laughs> Um, so PwC got acquired, well, PwC's consulting division got acquired by IBM. So I was working with IBM for about a year or two, and I kind of wanted something different. 
I didn't want to leave tech in the sense that I I didn't want to go into a completely unrelated field, but I didn't want to continue doing just consulting because, you know, the hours are insane. You never know where you're going to be. I was lucky that I I kept being assigned to projects in New York City, but there was no guarantee that I wouldn't be hopping on a plane every other week. So I started looking around and... You know how I mentioned a crew of college people that we were a group of right, consultants right. and we were close? So one of my closest friends was a journalist from that crew. And she one day, you know, I'm talking and having this angst about, oh, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And she said, you got the tech background, become a journalist. And that just kind of opened up a mindset because I hadn't even thought about it, which is kind of dumb considering I was reading all the major tech publications at the time. But it never occurred to me that I could be one of those people writing on that side. Were you always a writer, though, as a kid? Were you one of those kids who grew up writing, doing a lot of like short stories and all that stuff? I was a writer. I, I was more of a storyteller. So I loved telling stories. So I would write them down. Um, I was told in high school by a teacher that I had no future as a writer. So I never really actually pursued it. It was always it was always that oh, it would be nice if I can write a book someday. Give but me the because teacher's I'd name been told, <laughs> I'm going to protect his identity. <laughs> no, but, a, lot, a lot of us have the same kind of high school uh, high school kind of uh, uh, people who don't trust us or or who don't believe in us. But I wanted to just kind of circle back to your university years and looking for a job and landing in an IT lab, like you mentioned, right? That's not a normal course for a young lady in university at that time. You paint the picture, you mentioned there was a, you had a posse, you guys eventually became a clique, right? Were there a lot of women there? What was the, what was the, what was the, the scene like or the, the, the vibe like? So Barnard is an all-women college, so the, there were seven of us. So obviously female students. We were really, really close, specifically because we knew that our interest in tech was a little unusual. Barnard at the time didn't actually have a computer science department. Now they do. Back then, if you wanted to study anything related to computers, you had to cross-register at Columbia across the street. So a lot of the times in terms of all the technical activity, there were a lot of Columbia College students who would work for Barnard College. And there was sort of a group of students that tended to be, I guess, the more senior members. So and I think that was like a group of maybe five guys and one girl in that group. So we were kind of considered like a, in a way, the lesser group. In terms of, oh, okay, well, they're not really studying computer science. What do they really know? But I actually managed to assert myself pretty quickly. I was training the entire department on how to use Linux back then. Like I was running training sessions. So I was lucky that my manager, who was a master's student in a different university, she was the boss, but she gave me a lot of trust and gave me a lot of opportunity to basically show that, you know what, even if I wasn't part of that upper group of computer consultants, that I knew what I was doing and that I, I, was, I was allowed to learn. And to this day, I'm super grateful that she gave me that trust. Well, it's the same thing with, I mean, you, you mentioned being a consultant and doing the grunt work and this, the, a lot of travel and a lot of grind, but it also... It also teaches you to communicate and teaches you to write and teaches you to document findings and document recommendations properly. Did you find that 
those years of grunting through consulting work really help prepare you for just how easy it is to crank out a story or how, how easy it is to do your job today? It helped me a lot in figuring out what the details were, what the important details were. I actually had to learn how to, I had to unlearn how to write because as consultants, you want to read churn out 40-page documents, very detailed. You have the abstract and then an intro. There's a very certain format. So becoming a journalist and the doing opposite. the... Complete opposite, right? Where you're taking opposite. this big mountain of data. Right? So I had to learn how to write differently, but just the entire way. I know this is important and this is not. This is how you explain all those, all that stuff from the consulting days were super useful. And honestly, just the fact that I knew how to do that kind of documentation made it easier for me to read documentation when I was reporting or to talk to people. And when they started going down the weeds and I'm like, yeah, scale it back, bring it back. A lot of my consulting work prepared me more on the reporting side and less on the writing. And when did you when did you decide that journalism was going to be the move, and how did that start? Um, so it was two thousand four when um, my friend kind of gave me the epiphany that hey, you should totally check out journalism. And because I didn't have that confidence, a lot of times people are like, oh, I wrote for a college paper or stuff like that. I didn't have any of that, so I said, okay, I'm going to go to journalism school. I don't believe that you must go to a journalism school in order to be a journalist, but I needed that confidence boost. So I went to Columbia for one year, got my master's, and then I went straight into tech reporting. I was a bit of an anomaly in Columbia at the time because they were trying to put, you know, develop community reporter, beat reporters, political reporters. And I went in saying, nope, I'm writing only about tech and business. Don't you care just, about anything you else. You knew up front that you only wanted to do tech reporting and business reporting. You did not want to do human interest, politics or crime or any of that stuff. Absolutely not. I mean, I did it because that was my homework. Right, but right, right. I, I was upfront with all my um, teachers, all the, the deans, even the career advisors, that I cared only about tech and business. And I was super lucky because we were supposed to select our mentors. And my mentor at the time was Sylvia Nash. She's the one that used to write for Fortune. And she did the biography of Robert Nash, The Beautiful Mind. Right, right, right. So she was my mentor. She taught me how to write about business, what how you ask the question, when the numbers are important. So I learned everything about business reporting from her. And then once it was time to start working, I brought my own technical background. So it was a good combination that way. Did you enjoy business reporting at all? Like figuring out the financial implications and mergers and acquisitions. Do you enjoy that aspect of it or do you just like the technical writing part? I do enjoy the business aspect. Um, I like I like numbers. So it's funny because I never realized that I was a math person. I always said I wasn't, that I was good at it. But I realized pretty quickly, especially when I was doing that, I like having the spreadsheet. Give me spreadsheets. I'll dig into numbers. I'll look for like, oh, hey, how much did the stock sell for? How much was it last week? And just doing that analysis. That was actually my first internship where Every Friday, I had to put together a column on how the stock moved, how the retail index moved that week. And I loved it. I loved that level of understanding how business works. 
Right, and it lends itself to understanding where technology fits and how companies stand, and which is a perfect segue to your new role as executive editor at VentureBeat. First of all, what is VentureBeat? Can you give me a little elevator pitch for what's the focus of the publication? So VentureBeat is intended to be cutting-edge technology. So it's a publication for people who are focused on artificial intelligence, people who are looking at data technology, the area that we know VCs are currently investing in. So even though it's, it's like it's, venture it's, it's, it's focused on the venture capital community, though. I mean, are you just focused on what, what's being funded? Is it done from a financial perspective? Is it from the technology perspective? Is it the murder of all of that? So it's actually funny because I think we are trying to transform that. Um, up until recently, we were just about how much money was flowing and where. So it was very much only for venture capitalists. Right now, what we're trying to do is connect the enterprise with the venture capital. Where is the funding going? Why is the funding going there? What is the importance of that technology that's being invested in? So it's less about the amount of money itself, but more of what that technology is and how that's going to change. So we're trying to change a little bit that we're our core audience has always been the enterprise decision maker. Okay. And we're trying to make it a little bit more explicit that it's less about so and so raise this much money, which we still care about. But it's more in the context of, well, why do we want why do we care that so and so raise that much money? Are they changing things around? Is that a preview in what's going to happen in the next year? So like digital transformation stuff was really huge for us last year, specifically because we knew that was where the investment was going. And then we saw people really catching up saying, we need this. So, is there a, Are you focused on cybersecurity there at all? Or is it just an, a, a, a side part of what you're doing? Because I want to so know my, if we can get into venture capital funding on cybersecurity or you don't want to dig into that world yet. Oh, no, no, totally. Um, so that's where I come in. I basically came in saying, look, I don't know much about AI and all that, but I can talk for hours about cybersecurity. So I'm actually helping to kind of build that bridge because... You know, people who know me, they know that I've always believed that you can't look at cybersecurity in silo, that you have to consider cybersecurity as something else and cybersecurity. So for me, it's like coming in, it's like we're talking about all of this stuff with data. We're talking about AI. We're talking about bias. We're talking about surveillance. We still need to be thinking about cybersecurity. And all so those same conversations are happening in cybersecurity anywhere. How do we use AI and ML in offensive or defensive things? How are we using a lot of these, uh, a lot of those technologies you're talking about is just the side conversations we are happening in the security world anyway. Exactly. So I try to be that bridge between the two. There are now in cybersecurity industry, private companies, 18 unicorn companies, companies that are supposedly valued at $1 billion or more. Does that surprise you at all? Does that, is that in keeping with this part of the hype cycle we're in? Where, how do you, where, where do you see the, the crazy numbers that we're seeing in headlines and what's real on the ground? So every time I see those numbers, like, like you said, 18 unicorns, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, it's slightly a vindication that after all these years of us saying, hey, security is where the money is, security is where we need to be paying attention to, suddenly having these unicorns, these numbers kind of backing up that this isn't a afterthought, this isn't a, you know, the nerds in the background, but something important. So 
in that sense, it's super validating. On the other hand, I kind of feel like we're entering some kind. I don't know if bubble is the right term. In bubble this is case, the right term. But it just feels like because the last guy were this much, the next guy is automatically going to be double, triple. And it's just so weird to me because I'm not 100% sure we're evaluating them on their own merit, but it's always compared to the previous guy. I mean, who just got acquired? Okta had like a $6 billion. Okta acquired Otho for for two duos. Yeah, two duos, exactly. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, you know, when Cisco acquired Duo, that was a big deal. And that's only t- two years ago. And we're already doubled that now. And yeah, the numbers are out of control. The numbers yeah. are out of control and it feels very bubbly. It feels very early 2000s, uh, going back to the dot-com era. Yeah. But at the same time, like you're saying, it's a, it's a validation that this is big business. Listen, Microsoft just announced they made $10 billion a year in just cybersecurity-focused revenue. Akamai makes a billion dollars a year in cybersecurity revenue. Palo Alto and Cisco and these guys are raking in money. So there is obviously a lot of money on the table for startups. There's a lot of money on the table for investment and innovation. And this kind of VC, VC activity is not surprising. The valuations are. And it, none of it makes sense because they're all unprofitable. Nobody's making any money. And they're just kind of, everybody's, they're, they're chasing this hype cycle. From your That's vantage good. point in the venture beat world, are there segments that, that you see being properly funded? What are some of the, the ones that are really exciting to you? I mean... I know this is completely just buying all of those marketing and buzzwords, but, you know, Ryan, you and I, we've been hearing that passwords are going to die for, what, 20 years now? And I'm it's actually seeing... It's slowly dying, though. I mean, if you, if, you, right. if you work at Microsoft, you have not typed a password in. You don't. Exactly. Right. But like that's the thing. Like I see a lot of VC activity now really going gung-ho in the whole passwordless future, the entire, you don't need a password, but there's still authentication. So the entire way identity has been changing, I see a ton of um, activity there. And I think that's the right place for it right now. Like, you think I identity, you think, yeah, identity management continues to be a place where there's still room for some innovation. Exactly. And um, the other area is, this is the part where maybe it's because I come from a networking background, but I love the fact that we're seeing more innovation in how you even look at the network, how you even conceive of a network. And, you know, I don't just mean the entire software network, software what is it? Software defined networking or any of that. But even just like the fact that we're going back to looking at asset management, just the fact that we're giving the tools, we're innovating to give the tool to the network administrator saying, okay, we've, we're done chasing after all the shiny things. We're giving you the network administrators power and control again. And coming from my old experience, I actually appreciate that acknowledgement that without paying attention to the network, all those other shiny things are completely useless. And it comes back to fundamentals and basics, right? You have to do these four or five foundational basic things before you think about shiny boxes. And it's interesting you bring that up because you mentioned asset management. Like those are foundational things we were writing about in the early, early black hat days. (laughs) It had a different name, right? And now 
I'm, I'm again, startup activity. I look at what HD Moore is getting funded at Run, Rumble. Uh, Jeremiah Grossman is in this space. Everybody's asset discovery and asset management now. It's a new hot thing. Obviously, it fits because you have to have visibility and you can't protect what you can't see, blah, blah, blah. But none of this is new. Right. right. It's, it's the same things we've been writing about from, and again, as uh, you, you mentioned, um, identity management, like uh, stuff we've written about forever, which suggests two things, suggests two things. We're finally getting to the, to investing on the right things, or we've been freaking circling the wheel, investing on these things for 20 years. And we still back to square one. Do you see when you mention identity and you mention asset management and asset discovery, do you see us getting to a tipping point to solving these problems? Or this is just another attempt at jumping on the hamster wheel to try to fix asset management? You know what I mean? So what I actually think is we've finally gotten to the point where there is technology, where there is enough processing power. There is actually capability to do all the things that we've been wanting to do for years. So in a way, it's less of inventing the hamster wheel for like the millionth time, but more of we finally have the underlying equipment and knowledge and resources and computational power as well to to be able to manage and handle all of this, right? Or even understanding the algorithms, just the fact that we now have machine learning who can act like we actually know the math and the science in order to implement that right there is something we didn't have even five, 10 years ago. So I think it's just that we finally got to the point where all the things we've been talking about is actually doable. Do you think it's being done though? Or are we again, are we 10 years from now having this conversation again? Hey, for me, do you remember when we were talking about HD Moore getting funded by Rumble and everybody getting funded for asset discovery? And here we are 10 years later. And guess what? Visibility and having access to assets on your network is still the biggest problem we face, right? Is it really being fixed or are we just seeing... I you, think- you brought up the bubble word, but are we just yeah. figuring out this in another bubble? So I am willing to trust... That when we have someone like HD Moore looking at the problem, that we're looking at it correctly. So maybe so we're looking I'm at the correct little... problem. We look if, if well, HD Moore has eyeballs on it, then it's the correct problem. That doesn't say he's looking at it properly too. Because with this whole work from home world and uh, post pandemic world, the, the idea of the network is completely different, right? The idea of what what you have to manage are you are you going to now manage your uh, the, the home router in in your employee's home? Like all of that starts to look completely different now. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely, just in the past year, we're definitely at a point where the questions need to be revisited. So I think I would like to amend my earlier statement to say when we have people like HD Moore looking at the problem, I trust that he will be able to focus on the correct ones. And if it means that he has to change his mind, I also trust that HD Moore will change his mind and focus on the right one. So I guess my statement is we're finally at a point where we have some of the brightest people in the industry tackling what was not always considered the important or the sexiest problem. Right, right. And again, it's come back again. We we mentioned those two things, but there's patching. (laughs) Having people, getting people to just click on things safely and deal with the phishing problem. Like those are just basic a bucket of five, six foundational things, like structural things that you have to have in place. And 
it's exciting to see that kind of innovation there. But I just wonder if it's, again, just a repeat of the same investments, chasing dollars, chasing IPOs and, and acquisitions rather than fixing foundational things. I mean, there's always going to be a, a little bit of money chasing after and not fixing. But I think that's where the fact that we have a lot of people in positions of power and decision-making are the people who've been kind of coming up in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. I think that's where it's useful. Um, We're not suddenly, we're not currently dealing with people who don't have the visibility or the insight and what it's been like for the last 10, 15 years. You know, a lot of the times I'll speak with someone who is in security for only like five years and they don't have any context to what we did 10 years, 15 years ago. Right. You're talking about that institutional memory of the practitioners and the guys who came out through the trenches now becoming the entrepreneurs. Right. And now not just entrepreneurs, but actually the ones with the money. So they're the ones investing. So they are less likely to suddenly be like, oh, this is exciting. They're the ones more likely to be like, wait, we did this 20 years ago. Let's do it differently. So it's not just the entrepreneurs, but the people writing the checks are also the ones who have seen sort of the ups and downs already. Well, you and I have been in this industry forever. So we've kind of seen cybersecurity kind of be born before our eyes, right? And there's this there's this uh, generational point, like generational pivot point where the guys who came up, there was no there was no availability of cybersecurity degrees. They kind of learn by, like yourself, you know, learn by baptism, by fire in the trenches and so on. And then there was a point where, you know, NYU and some schools started offering technology and, and cybersecurity classes and degree programs where a new bunch of educated kids were coming into the industry right around the time around around that time when it was being born or halfway to being born. And we, we mentioned HD Moore and some of these old school lifers getting themselves and having the money to do the investments or even themselves building the technology. Do you see this generational shift driving things forward where now security education and formal education added to what has been built by the practitioners get us going in the right direction? Or is, is the security education just not in line? To keep? I know it's a confusing, rambling question, but I'm trying to connect, I'm trying to connect these generational divide with where we are and who is really going to move us forward. No, I mean, I think those are the same questions I've been struggling with. And, you know, because I look at the cybersecurity program that's offered by NYU, um, Columbia had a couple courses. They don't do a degree in it. But, you know, there are other schools who do. And ASU has a, like an actual cybersecurity program that's just focused on computer security with a cybersecurity bent. I know Purdue and some other schools also has this. So, like, there, there's going to be a whole new batch of entrants into the workplace. Yeah. With a, with a background in just focused on security specifics. So that's exciting. It's exciting, but um, I also wonder that if by focusing only on cybersecurity, if we're going to lose a whole generation who don't know the basics of how the computer, the how the network's working, um, 
I don't know what the programs are like, like right now, but I know even like two or three years ago, some of those security programs didn't have basic networking courses. Right. And I remember thinking, well, how are you going to be teaching people to be on the blue team if they don't under, you know, they don't need to know the exact, like what, how the TCP protocol works, but they should understand that here are the major switching protocol. I think that we are getting to the point where the cybersecurity education is so focused a little bit on the security aspect that we sometimes forget that it sits upon a whole body of practical knowledge. I think there's room for both. I, You know, there's always people who are like, oh, should I get a degree or should I go for self-taught? And I think this is why security actually has room for both. Right, it that does. That we have room for people who are learning the hand-on, this is how I did it and this is how I know it, and people who are coming in saying, you know what, I actually sat down and I studied what it means and what these are, and I had labs, and I, all I did was I just did red teaming all day or I did blue team stuff. So I think there's room for both places. And the industry has evolved, uh, to your point, Ryan, that you know it's not the same, but it has evolved that there's actually room for all of them. It's there not is. one kind anymore. Yeah, but it's pretty exciting to have generations coming into the workforce understanding what red teaming is. And you don't have to teach that from scratch because, you know, you have a bunch of computer scientists coming out of college and don't understand adversary emulation or just basics around cybersecurity, right? It's pretty exciting to know that that our industry has matured to the point where we're now just college degrees are focused entirely on this. Oh, it's a lot of fun when you go to like college campuses and get to sit at CTF. And you're looking at these college students who are completely devoted and they're using the language, the terminology that I've always kind of associated with, not in school. So, I mean, I I actually make a point to try to sit in on at least one or two CTFs a year just because I love that energy. And when you see all the new generation of security professionals already involved in that mindset, it's really exciting. Do you still get your hands dirty in code? I know you, you've, uh, I saw you playing some, it, I don't think it was CTF, but one of the SASs you were. Um, uh, <laughs> it was the CTF. It was SAS. the CTF, yeah. So yeah, do you still play around Kobe, with that? Basically. Oh yeah, I try to do a CTF at least once a year. Um, I don't get very far just because I don't have the time to, you know, do it for eight hours straight. But I do make it a point to try out um, a CTF if it's offered. There's a couple organizations that do like women-only CTFs. I take part in those several times a year. Why? What's the benefit? Help the kids understand the benefits of maybe not, not necessarily being a master at CTFs, but understanding why that the, the idea and those concepts, how they apply to real life. So I do the CTF specifically because it makes it keeps me honest so that I know what the issues are when people are talking about here to think going on. I, I can actually connect it with something I've done right. because that's kind of how I learn. But I actually encourage people to do CTF. I mean, I'm going to be upfront. My two kids do CTF at least once a year and I actually insist on it. And it's been instrumental in helping them learn what web security, what being online, the whole idea of OSINT, you know, just knowing how much information you're just exposing just by taking a selfie, all of those things, they now know on a very, um, like a very basic level because of the fact that I've been having them do CTF. A meaningful level too, where it's, 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 it's on the ground training, right? 
Exactly. And it's a safe way of training. I mean, I remember the first time my my older son did a sitia and he loved it and he's using Metasploit and he's doing all kinds of things. We actually had to pull him aside and say, hey, by the way, never do this on a machine you do not own. And right, we had to right. have a whole conversation about what ethical and et cetera meant. And he really absorbed that. So that now when he's talking about, you know, he's teenager he does all kinds of things online but because he's been doing ctfs he knows what's possible and what's not possible he's actually a better digital citizen because of that and i think that's the case for anyone if you just do it you suddenly realize all the things we take for granted maybe you shouldn't maybe you should change how you do things so so what's next for you you you've taken on this gig as the executive editor at um, venture beat you're focused on 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 building out like a, a cybersecurity presence there um you know what what excites you what what is like what's on your beat I mean for me I think about a year or so ago I suddenly realized that the entire intersection of cybersecurity and data science is something that I've been fascinated by and, you know, cybersecurity is full of data. We have logs, we have, you know, indicators of compromise, we have all kinds of numbers, but we never do anything productive with them. So at VentureBee, I'm pulling together like just ways of bringing cybersecurity into other fields. My goal also is to bring the entire conversation of let's look at the numbers, let's do data-driven decisions, let's look at what kind of evidence we have to make sense, you know, let's Cybersecurity has always been about doing things because it feels right, or that's what my gut said, or yeah, you know, this is the story I heard, so I'm going to do it this way. And I'm trying to get to the point where we're saying, let's look at the data. We got plenty of it. And you think so, you think you think by parsing data and parsing just these mountains and mountains of data, we'll be able to start challenging assumptions and start doing things completely differently around concepts and ideas. Could you give me an I, example? Um. So I'm going to completely mangle this. But I remember, uh, I think a year ago, when Scientia, Wade Baker, and um, Jay Jacob, they were coming to me and they were just like, yeah, you know how we talk about the, if you look at how many records were breached, and then you look at this whatever figure, now you can estimate how many, you know, how much that breach is worth. Well, we actually think based on the data that that's not how you should do the calculation. And that to me was an eye opener because I was sitting there, wait, wait, now we have a way to actually estimate the impact of a data breach. And apparently it's not just multiplying by number of records. And to me, that was a big thing. Or just even like, you know, Kenneth Security has been doing a lot of this research on figuring out well, how do you prioritize what to patch? Well, apparently it's not just, you know, patch everything, but you Or you just patch choose. based on critical or you just patch based on CVSS, right? It's There's a lot of science to it. Right. And just the fact that they're right now coming out with models and very specific, like this is what the data says. I am now feeling a lot more comfortable that, oh, okay, I actually have a rationale, a reason for doing things a certain way. And call me a control freak, but I like knowing why I should do something instead of just being told I should do something. And you think that's changing? You think the mountain of data and some of the data, just the data parsing and the ability to figure out what the data is saying is actually changing decisions and changing uh, changing the way networks are defended and run? 
I think so. I think there are some companies that are a little bit more mature in their cybersecurity journey that is beginning to use data as a way to make their decisions. And it could be as simple as using data to figure out, okay, what tech are we going to invest in? Or figuring out, okay, this is what we need to buy more of. Or this is our justification for why we can get rid of this data center and move this to the cloud and stuff like that. I think financial, it started out as a way to make financial decisions, but we're finally getting to the point where they're making actual tech decisions based on the data that they have on hand. Yeah, and I I, I think if people start, I mean, data lakes and just this massive mountains of data is also, a, is, is also a big, big business. But as you started this off mentioning machine learning, artificial intelligence, we kind of laugh these things off as hype, hype words and you know, PR press releases with ML AI, but there's some fascinating things happening in ML AI space to go oh, yeah. through these mountains of data and pinpoint specific things that not necessarily we, we may have been doing wrong, but it may change our assumptions around how things should be done. And I think that's a really interesting trend I'm hearing from CISOs as well. It's like, why are we assuming that this is the way the network should look? Exactly. Right. I mean, for a long time, you know, you had logs, but nobody ever looked at it. And then now that we suddenly started looking logs, we're saying, oh, wait a minute, this is actually valuable information. So we are finally at a point where we're realizing that if we can use all of that tool that the advertising industry has been using for years, if we even apply that to our network log, we're suddenly finding out things that we've been ignoring for years. Pamela Rashid, Executive Editor at VentureBeat, we're running out of time. you got to come back because we haven't touched on your, like, I wanted to talk about journalism, going over into the, the vendor-backed journalism world and some of the ethics and some of the issues there around, you know, come back. Come back, let's do this again. We're up at 40 minutes and we still haven't touched on half of the things I wanted to talk about. But that tells me that we're, we're having a good fun conversation. Well, if you're, if, you don't, if you're not tired of me yet, I'm definitely happy to come back. Absolutely, Famita. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.